you brought your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you would like to go ahead and open there. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. We'll be there shortly. If you brought, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, Scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. And you'll probably also somewhere in your vicinity, hopefully, is a Black Pew Bible as well that you would like to pick up and read out of one of those. So there is a story that I heard a long time ago in a seminary class. I refreshed myself on uh, this week about a guy named Boniface. Um, he is uh, in, uh, he was put into sainthood by the Catholic Church eventually, uh, and you're about to see one of the reasons why. Uh, one of the stories about this man. Uh, he lived outside of a Germanic town uh, and was uh, ministering there. Uh, and this town was known for its its pagan worship. Uh, and there was one place in particular where they would gather around a tree. Uh, and they would uh, worship the god of thunder, Thor himself. Uh, they would worship him there. And, and legend has it, there's a lot of stuff that goes on with legend, and we don't really know if it's true or not. So you can take some of this with a grain of salt, and I'll tell you which parts to take with a grain of salt. <laughs> legend had it that there were children's sacrifices made around this tree. We don't really know for sure if that's the case, but we do know that it was uh, a pagan worship going on there. Uh, and everything that is wrong with that kind of combined uh, within that. And, and Boniface, St. Boniface, wasn't saint at the time. He was just Boniface at the time. Decided that he was going to confront this head on. Uh, and so he, like any good, gentle Christian, took an axe, uh, went to the tree, uh, and in front of all of the pagan worshipers, cut the tree down. Uh, they thought it couldn't be done. Uh, they thought that Boniface's God didn't have any power over their God. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of fantastical elements that go with this. Uh, you know, some, some of the legend has it that he struck the tree once, a great wind came up and blew it over, uh, and then it fell and broke into four equal parts in the shape of a cross. Uh, that's probably adding a little bit of a extra, um, like, like a, a creative license to it. Uh, but it's pretty, we're pretty sure uh, that this guy did exactly that, go and confront this head on and that it made an impact uh, in the people who were there watching, realizing that their God, the pagan God that they worshiped, wasn't uh, all supreme and all powerful like they thought that he was. Uh, and many of them supposedly gave their lives to Christ, got baptized, began to follow Boniface's God. Now, am I going to encourage you for the next 20 or so minutes some of you are thinking, yeah, right, 20 minutes. Uh, but I'm not going to encourage you for the next 20 or so minutes to uh, go around chopping down trees or, or burning down religious symbols of other faiths. No, I'm not going to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, please don't ever quote me as saying anything like that. I think that's a bad idea for the most part. But sometimes there is a time to fight. Sometimes there is a time to step up and do the right thing, right action, Boniface noticed that and did so in a very bold way that many of us would find, frankly, uncomfortable, that our world would certainly frown at today if anyone were to do anything like that. But I admire, I admire his boldness and willingness to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to confront this problem. And perhaps maybe some of us could use more of that as well. Because I don't know if you've noticed, in our world there's a lot of bullies there's a lot of people who like to take joy and make profit off of the oppression of other people, off of putting down other people, whether it's just a literal bully at school or whether it's a, a system that's bullying someone. There are a lot of things in our world that work against good, work against the children of God, and work against those who are the weakest, who Jesus would call the least of these. Now, last week we talked out of Ephesians about how 
We never fight against flesh and blood. Our, our battle is never with any person, but rather the powers and the principalities and the cosmic forces that are at work behind the fleshly enemies that we see in the world. This idea of spiritual warfare that we've been talking the last couple of weeks. Uh, we started with just the reality of it, uh, looking at First Peter and again at James, uh, about how both of them talk about the, the present evil force. The devil is real, the devil is powerful, but we reminded ourselves that he is not scary, that we have power over him, not on our own. We certainly don't on our own. On our own, we are hopeless against his power, but with Christ in us, we have the power to resist him, as James and Peter both called us to do in those passages. And last week we talked about the armor of God and, and the how we do that resisting uh, to what we do daily to ask ourselves, are we, are we making sure we're, we're wearing truth and we're wearing righteousness and we have salvation and the gospel of peace? Are we taking those things out into the world every day as we seek to maintain our integrity, maintain our walk, to keep ourselves safe from the evil at work in the world by resting in Christ's finished work and wearing the armor and the gospel that he gave us to wear. And today we're going to continue in this idea of defense by talking about, and I gave a preview of this last week, by talking about the best defense that there is. And that is what? The best defense is a good offense. You've probably heard that before. There is a time to fight. There is a time to stand up and do the right thing. And we're going to talk about that this morning through Jesus' words to Peter and to all of us gathered in the church in Matthew 16. But before we do that, let's go to God one more time in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for the symbol of victory that we got to see, partake in, be a part of as a church body in baptism. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate uh, mothers and mothers of faith that have, that have carried on that victory by passing on faith to the next generation. God, we thank you that we do not have anything or any reason to fear because of who you are and what you have done. And God, I pray that as we look at your word and look at what we can do in response to what you have done, God, that you would just remind us to rest in your finished work, even as we think about our response to it. God, I pray that you would remove distraction from us from our hearts and our minds, God, that you would give me the gift and ability to communicate your truth and that you would remove everything else from the equation. And God, that you would speak clearly in such a way that your spirit would testify to our spirit and do a work of transformation within us. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, Jesus is gathered with his disciples outside of Caesarea Philippi. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's set this in proper context. We'll talk about Caesarea Philippi. 
uh, where this event, where this uh, conversation between Jesus and his disciples took place. Caesarea Philippi was probably 25 miles or so from Galilee, so in the neighborhood. Now, it took a lot longer to travel 25 miles than, of course, so a little further than you might expect. Um, but close enough to where you would think things would be similar or typical uh, as they were in, in the rest of the Judean area. But Caesarea Philippi has the name Caesarea Philippi for a reason. Caesarea, meaning it's a city designated or honor to honor Caesar. And so there's obviously a heavy Roman influence, obviously a very pagan, worldly influence in this city. And it didn't just start with Caesar. Uh, back in the day, a long time ago, there were people there that worshipped Baal, and then they began to worship Greek gods, Pan in particular. Um, I'm not suggesting that you go out and study Greek gods and Greek mythology, but if you ever look up anything about Pan, it's one of the weirder of the Greek gods, uh, one, of the, one of the more profane, <laughs> one of the more... Um, perverted versions of the Greek gods. He was a fertility god. Uh, he, he looked like half goat, half man. Um, just this very weird thing. And, and because he was a fertility god, you can imagine the ways that the pagan people of the day worshiped him. Temple prostitution and things like that. That happened a lot in, in the letters of Paul that he would write to different people. Uh, and, and, and the pagan cities in which they live would be dealing with very similar things. So it's not completely out of the realm of, of normalcy for the world at this time. But there's definitely something wrong with the situation, something abnormal, something op that opposes the ways of God, the ways of God's people, the ways of the kingdom of God at work in Caesarea Philippi. And of course, it eventually becomes Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar himself. So there's Bell being worshipped, there's Pan being worshipped, and in the Roman pantheon, there's Caesar being worshipped too. He was often referred to as a god-king whatever Caesar was ruling at the time, depending on which Caesar it was. Some of them viewed themselves more godly than others, but you definitely see that at play within the Roman system of thinking. And so that kind of sets up where Jesus is. But not only that, there's some interesting things I didn't know about this passage before I started studying this week. And that is that Caesarea Philippi was built on a rock, like a large rock. Now, it, it ended up, the old city was, it ended up kind of surrounding this rock, but it was a rock that went about 100 meters straight up into the air. It was about 500 meters wide. It was uh, one of the, according to some of the commentaries I read, uh, it was one of the more um, like noticeable, obvious features in the whole Judean landscape in that area. You know, you had obviously the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but Caesarea Philippi and the giant rock there might have been second uh, as far as just interesting topography. Uh, and so it was out there on this big rock, and within this rock, within this rocky area, there was also a cave. Now, the, 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 the spring has dried up, uh, but at the time there was a cave that had a natural spring of water coming out of it. Uh, and what the pagans, what most of the people who lived in Caesarea Philippi believed about this particular cave is that during the winter, the fertility gods would go to the underworld or Hades. Keep that word in your head for later. They would go down into Hades during the time, during winter, and they would go through this spring because they believed that the spring, the water came out from, from the underworld. And so they would go there. And so some of these, some of the people in the area, and it's still called this, there's an area still, you can look it up online. It was called that cave, the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. And so again, you're going to see why that matters here in a moment. Um, so set that, that Jesus may be standing in the very shadow of this cave, but certainly somewhere close to them, wherever they're gathered. This is the context in which Jesus gives these words. And he starts by asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Or who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
They, well, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, you know, they respond with popular thinking about who Jesus was or the Son of Man was in that day. You might find similar answers, not necessarily the same answers, but you might find similar attitudes if you were to walk up to just a normal person on the side of the street in downtown Dallas or Fort Worth and ask them, who is Jesus? Well, if they, if they don't know him personally, they might say a good teacher, um, he was the, the founder of Christianity. You know, they might view it in a very kind of practical sense. Um, some might say that he's a make-believe character. Uh, some might say that he was a prophet of God, but not God himself. Uh, there's a lot of different opinions out there as to who this Jesus really was, whether he was made up or whether he was something else entirely. Some of them might say he was the son of God, and you would know at that point that you have found a patriot, you have found, a, 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 you'd found a, a, someone that you could do life with, someone that uh, believes the same as you do, and that you had found a member of the church if they answer that way. Now, the world may know of Jesus, but do they know the Christ? Because that's how Peter answers here in just a moment. When Jesus says, you are, when Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, always being the first one to speak up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the proclamation that Jesus gets pumped up about in the remainder of the passage that I read. This is the proclamation that allows Peter to be called blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to him, but heaven revealed this to him. This is a proclamation that is therefore divine in a sense. You are the Christ the son of the living God. Christ meant Messiah. You are the saving one. You are the one who is going to come set everything right. Not only are you the Messiah, you are the son of the living God, the God who is alive and active and present in our world. You are his beloved son. And so Peter stands up and boldly proclaims this truth. If you know context, you know where it's going. Peter puts his foot in his mouth very shortly after this. But this proclamation, this bold statement of faith makes Jesus respond again with, with joy, with excitement over exactly how Peter responded. This is the proclamation that pushes back darkness of who Jesus is. Let me put it this way. Our fight against darkness, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Our fight against darkness begins with proclaiming the victory of Christ. I've said that basically in some form or fashion each of the last two weeks, and I'm saying it again this week. Because I want us to make sure that when we talk about the devil, when we talk about demons, when we talk about spiritual warfare, that we know that this is not a battle we fight on our own power. Nor is this a battle in which we ought to have anything to fear. It begins and ends with the proclamation of the victory that we have in Christ. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, he is, he is saying about something that hasn't even really happened yet, that he hasn't even witnessed that God was going to, Jesus was going to become the Messiah. But this is that proclamation, that truth. You are the saving one. You are the one who is coming to set everything right. You are the Messiah. That's where the proclamation begins. And remember where they are. Again, remember that context. They are in a very worldly part of the world, a part of the world that had given itself over to the powers of darkness. And in that place, Peter stands up and says, I don't care what all these other people have to say about you. What I know you to be is the, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's where the victory for us begins with that proclamation. 
That's why the Christian life is symbolized by the starting of baptism. Do you believe, do you, have you accepted Jesus as Savior and do you plan to live for him for the rest of your life? That first yes to those questions is our first statement of victory. Not that I'm going to save myself, that I'm going to be this awesome Christian, but I believe that Jesus died for me and allowed me to raise again in him. And in that, we have victory. So that's where it starts. That's the first spiritual battle you need to be worried about, the one that's already been won the one that Christ has won upon the cross. I can't get over that song, and I know it's your favorite song. It's one of my favorite stanzas within uh, hymnody, uh, within all the hymns of the church, that this, this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What a truth, what a victory. My sin, oh, the bliss. Ah, I just love, who wrote that? Tell me. I had no idea that it was Horatio G. Spatford. I would have said Fanny Crosby. That's always the go-to, right? But Horatio, when he was writing that, I can imagine my sin taking a pause. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not just a piece of it, not just a little part of it. My sin, not in part, but the whole, every single bit of it was nailed to the cross. And there, I don't have to bear it anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Try to get in Horatio's head on that one. And the bliss and the glorious thought that comes with that victory. And so when you hear me or anybody else talking about spiritual warfare and the victory we have over Satan, don't make it some hokey thing where we're talking about ghosts and goblins and all of that. That's not the reality. The reality is we're talking about the victory that Christ has that is powerful and present in the physical world, in the spiritual world, in the eternal world, and in the world behind. It changes everything, the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. Our fight against darkness begins with proclaiming the victory of Christ. After Peter says this, Jesus, after saying, Peter, you are blessed, says, upon this rock, and he, you know, he talk, calls Peter Cephas, which is, or, or Kepha, which is the Aramaic word for Greek, or Aramaic word for Greek, Aramaic word for rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's a lot at play within this one little phrase. First, again, he changes Peter, Simon, Peter, he goes by Peter, making sure that we know he's the rock, and you can take this in a lot of different directions in the church today you know, with Catholicism and all of that. I think that's hanging a lot on one verse. Don't read too much into that. I know that the way we, we Protestants try to soften the blow of that sometimes is to say, well, it's the proclamation that Peter made, that Christ is the, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But there's also something special about Peter that we don't want to forget. He ends up kind of being the leader in Acts and speaking that truth and, and God allows him to be the leader of the church in a way, but to say that that's some sort of thing for Papal succession, I shouldn't even go there. I'm wasting y'all's time by even talking about that. The important thing to note is what Jesus says about the church. The first time in the Gospels, the first time in the Bible, really, that the word ekklesia is used. That's the Greek word behind the word church there. And what that word means is the called out ones. That's what it literally means. Like if you break down the etymology of it, it means those who are called out. Uh, we take it to also mean fellowship or assembly or, or people that are gathered together. Uh, to me, it's a lot better word than church because we go to a church building. We do church services. The church is the people of God, those who are called out. And so when I wish that everybody in the world, when they heard the word church, they would think of it in this sense. And myself too, that I would remind myself that this is who Jesus is talking about. 
the called out ones. But again, think of, think of that idea of being called out in a very worldly city, hanging in, perhaps in the shadow of a worldly monument, in the heart of darkness, as it were, for the Jewish people, even close to Galilee still, there was so much of a world difference that Jesus talks about the church as a group of people who are called out to live a different way. The church, by definition, is a group of people called out of the kingdom of darkness for the promotion of the kingdom of God. Called out of the kingdom of darkness for the promotion of the kingdom of God. Upon this rock, upon Peter, upon his proclamation, upon this faith, Jesus will build his church. And then he goes on to say, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you're reading other translations, it might say the gates of Hades. And that's a closer transliteration of the Greek word there. It's not, there's a couple of different words used in, for hell in, in, in the New Testament. Gehenna is the one that's most clearly like a hellish place of fire and torment. Uh, but Hades was kind of a Greek concept of the underworld and everything that went with it. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. And so there's some debate over should it be hell or should it be Hades? Hell is in the sense of the, the abode of the devil and the, the place of eternal torment. Or should it be Hades, just kind of this dark underworld where all dead people went, kind of that Greek conception. I submit to you that I don't really know if it matters all that much. Because either way, what is symbolized is everything that is opposed to the kingdom of God. Hades wasn't just like this benevolent place where dead people went. Hades itself was the realm of the underworld. And all that, even in the Greek conception, all that was evil, all that was opposed to life, dwelt there and came from there. So when Jesus talks about the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, I don't care which one you use, to be perfectly honest. Because either way, I think what Jesus is saying is that the gates of everything that is behind this system in the world this system that is at work in Caesarea Philippi, this system that is at work when people are abused in the name of a God, this system that is at work when there's all sorts of debauchery in the name of worship, this system where the least of these get left behind and immorality gets congratulated. This system is what Jesus was talking about when he talks about these gates of hell, everything that is opposed to life and God himself but they will not stand against the kingdom of God. This is one of the only places the word gates shows up in the New Testament. Gates are a defensive measure. Gates are meant to keep people out and keep people in. Keep people out and keep people in. So whether you view it as hell or death, what Jesus is saying, and I'm fine if you view it as both, what Jesus is saying is that hell and death's ability to keep people in or out is about to be broken down completely by my church. Death will no longer contain anyone. Neither will hell or the underworld or any demonic forces that live there. 
All of that will pass away. The gates will be broken down. And I hope you see the symbolism by taking something that is a defensive measure. Jesus has moved from, oh no, what are we going to do against the forces of evil? Like the disciples hiding in the boat when there is a storm. What are we going to do, Jesus? To standing out, calling out, and in an offensive measure saying, we will go into the heart of darkness. And he says it in the heart of darkness. In Caesarea Philippi, right next to perhaps or at least somewhere in the vicinity of this monument to everything that is worldly, everything that is opposed to God, a place that is literally called the gates to the underworld. He stands at what everybody around him in that world would have thought was the gates to the underworld, the gates to hell, and he says, this will not prevail against my church. Nothing will prevail against my church. The kingdom of God will destroy every stronghold the enemy has. And then he spells it out a little clearer in the next verse, saying that we have the power to bind, we have the power to loose. Whatever we bind will be bound, whatever we loose will be loosed, giving us the keys to the kingdom of heaven, giving us the keys to the kingdom of God to do that work. In the after context, if you continue reading on in Matthew 16, you realize that the next thing that Jesus talks about is himself taking himself into the heart of darkness on the cross. Peter says, no, Jesus, you shouldn't do that. That's not the way we really, really believe. And he, re- he rebukes and corrects, G- corrects Peter for that and, and, and reaffirms this idea of he is going to go and receive this punishment of sin. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to come back. He's going to go to the heart of darkness and vanquish darkness. And then in the next kind of section, and he encourages his disciples to also take up their cross and follow him. And so when we read all of this in context, Jesus is telling us that the proclamation that Christ is the son of the living God, Jesus is the Messiah, that this is a blessed statement, a statement upon which all of his church will be built and founded. And this statement, this victory is so profound that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not stand against the victory of Christ. And he is going to go in and receive the crucifixion in order to prove that reality. He himself will pass through the gates of Hades and come back having blown them wide open. And then he will give us the power also to take up our own crosses and follow after him daily. I hope, I hope. I pray my passion in this message is for all of us when we think of spiritual warfare to realize not some spooky reality, but to realize a victory that you and I have over evil through Christ in us. And that you and I get to be on the front lines of taking that victory out. You and I in the heart of darkness, I'm not calling Grandview, Texas the heart of darkness, by the way, but in the world in general, get to go out with this truth. What truth? Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus loves you and his church does too. There is a better way you can be free And we take that out into the world, announcing this victory. And guess what? You called out ones. Those of you assembled in the name of Jesus, the gates of hell, the gates of death will not prevail against you. So let us get busy. There is a time to fight. Now is the time to fight. What battles do you need to fight in your own life? What do you need to preach the gospel to yourself about? 
what victories need to be won in your own life, uh, addictions, sin, broken relationships, whatever it might be, what do you need to apply to your own life and Christ's ability to break down the strongholds of the enemy? And then what battles do you need to fight for others? For whom do you need to stand? What at work in the world is Christ calling you to oppose in his name? What tree is he calling you to go chop down? Not a literal tree, but what is he calling you to go take a stand against, make right action, right choices, and even when it's not comfortable being led by God to go into the heart of darkness with the light that Jesus has given you and push back that darkness in Jesus' name and watch the gates fall. Where is Christ calling you to take that light? And to what darkness are you being called to be a light? This is where spiritual warfare matters to the rest of the world. When you and I take the light out. And we do it, of course, with the sword of the spirit that we talked about last week. With the word of God. With the truth of God. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God to take that reality and preach that reality and live that reality so that the gates of hell and death may fall for others just as they have fallen for us. So suit up, put the armor on. Today is a good day to fight in your own life and for others. For those of you who may be here this morning and not have a relationship with Jesus, I would love to tell you what that looks like during our time of invitation or after church if you would like to talk about it then. I would like to share with you that the struggle that you have had your whole life, that Christ isn't, it has come to, to free you from that. And I wanna tell you about what that looks like to guarantee you hope and future. Things won't be perfect, but they'll be on their way to perfect. And I would love to tell you what that looks like. And those of you who do know Jesus as Savior, Maybe there's a battle that you need to apply the light to. If you need to pray about that or anything else this morning, I'm here to do it with you now during our time of invitation or after the service as well. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. And as they do that, I encourage you to pray in whatever way, do whatever God is calling you to do.